So let's talk to, I guess everybody in here, I would suppose, at some point or another has been a student or is a student. Have you ever had an English or a writing assignment where you're supposed to interpret what a story's about or a paper or a book or something? You're supposed to interpret and you're supposed to figure out what the author was trying to convey and then tell people, tell your teacher, tell the class if it's a report, a verbal report, what, what that thing that you read was about. Anybody ever had to do that before? Six of you? Okay. Homeschoolers. <laughs> well, sometimes that's really easy to do. Sometimes it's, it's really plain. Like, like if, you, if you read Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis was a direct allegory type of person, and Aslan is Jesus. I mean, that's just a given. Tolkien's a little different. He didn't like allegories, so you can't really pigeonhole his characters into one little role. So sometimes it's hard to figure out what the author meant when you're reading something. What do they really want to try to convey? I had a friend. This guy was an A student, bright guy, high school. And he, was, he decided in his interpretation, in his paper about Beowulf that he was going to go against hundreds of years of tradition of what things meant, and he came up with his own interpretation. And he was really proud of it, okay? He was really proud of it. He got a C, okay? <laughs> it didn't work out so well for him. And he was really mad he got a C because his thoughts were original. Well, when you're trying to interpret something, we're not looking for originality. We're trying to figure out what does somebody mean? What did they say, and what does it mean? Well, this morning... It's actually exactly what we're doing. Hopefully, that's what I'm doing every week when I come and present the Bible to you. Hopefully, I'm looking to see what the authorial intent was, what the author was trying to say to the, to the people that he was writing to, and then bring that timeless truth into our day and help us apply it to our lives. But let me ask you this question. What if the author showed up and told you what the story meant, or what the paper meant, or what the law meant? What if the author could explain what he meant when he wrote what he wrote? Would that clear some things up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when the, today what we're going to get, we're going to get the author, capital A, author, explaining exactly what he meant when he wrote something. Jesus is going to tell us what He meant when He gave the law. Jesus Christ is, was, forever will be God. We believe in a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are not different. They're the same, and yet they're different. Right? Same in essence, different in role, different in manifestation maybe, but one God. So when the law was given... Jesus Christ, as God, gave the law. So today what we're going to see is the author shows up on the scene and for, oh, I don't know, a few thousand years, people have been interpreting the law according to what they thought it meant. And today the author shows up and explains exactly what it meant. So we get firsthand explanation of what the Bible means actually says and what the law is actually all about. And he's going to do this throughout the rest of chapter 5 of Matthew on various subjects. But today's topic is anger. Oh. Anybody ever deal with anger? Oh, not me. There's like people elbowing their spouse and stuff like that. I guess really the better question is, has anybody ever not had any anger issues? And it's crazy. We all have had anger issues, right? We deal, all of us have, do, and will deal with anger in one way or another or to one extreme or another. And here's, spoiler alert, we're, we're always going to. You're always going to deal with anger. Anger is a big part of our lives, and we need to know how to handle it. And you know what? It just so happens the Bible says stuff about anger. So we're going to deal with that. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of the first specific things that Jesus addresses is anger. So that kind of makes it seem like a big deal, right? Because it is. And Jesus knew it, and as the author, He wants us to know it. 
So let's read what he has to say and work our way through it. We'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. If you would stand with me. And let's look through another window this morning. The window of the Word of God, God's revelation of Himself to us that points us to Him. And I would ask you to hear past my voice this morning to hear the very words of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you, put in, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. God, you speak clearly. And in our malaise and in our laziness and sometimes just out of utter confusion, we don't hear clearly. This morning, would you open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds, open up our lives so that we might hear you speak clearly through the power of your Spirit, through the power of your Word. Apply this Word to your people, and if there be those here this morning who do not know you, Holy Spirit, breathe life and bring regeneration and help us to be faithful with what you give us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Not that you really needed my permission for that, but... Now, as we start this morning, it's going to be really important to remember what we've covered so far in our short progress through the Sermon on the Mount to this point. First, we saw that Jesus is speaking to whom? His disciples. When He sits down on top of the mountain, it says He opened His mouth and His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them. And again, that's very important. This is for the disciples of Jesus. Then, we saw the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven in verses 3 through 12, which we call the Beatitudes. And then in verses 13 through 15, we saw that Jesus tells His disciples that they're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and that they are to do their good deeds before men so that God would get glory. And then two weeks ago, my notes say last week because this was ready last week and we didn't have that church thing. So two weeks ago, we saw Jesus turn His attention to the law of God. And He said that He had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it full. And verse 20 was a shock to everybody's system when Jesus said to His hearers, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And verse 20 is pivotal as we move into the passage today. Jesus is clearly saying that the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is not true righteousness. And that if anyone wants to see the kingdom of heaven, they can't rely on outward works, but rather have to be right with God and before men, flowing from a heart that is clean and pure. True righteousness is internal and works itself outward as the righteousness of Christ is exhibited through the true believer. And this greater, which is actually much greater righteousness, this righteousness is a gift from God and cannot be achieved by our efforts or trying. But Jesus was clear that His followers, the citizens in His kingdom, would live lives based on the law of God and the same law that was revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus said not a jot or a tittle would diminish from the law of God and His people would keep the commands of God and they would teach others to do the same. So, what we'll see today and through the rest of chapter 5 is Jesus expounding on what living in and by this law looks like. So we'll see Jesus start with anger today. Then we'll move, not next week, next week we'll have a Christmas message. But the next time we come back together on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll move to lust and then to divorce, oaths, retaliation, and then loving your enemies. 
And this will be based on the law, not in opposition to it. And Jesus will amplify this law, give it its true meaning, focusing on the inner man, not just doing things that look like they may be what God may have wanted us to do with bare minimum effort. No, this teaching will look into us. It will penetrate us and call us to heartfelt obedience and repentance internally and externally. This passage today and going forward through chapter 5 is devastating. And I mean that. This unearths things in us and opens our eyes to things in the law that we have not seen before. Not new truth, the old truth made clear, made plain. And let me tell you what, it's going to affect every area of my life. It's going to affect every area of your life. And if it doesn't, you've missed it. I've missed it. So let's start in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, Jesus starts this section, and He's just come out of true righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Then He says, let's talk about murder. Everybody's like, okay, that's pretty easy. Clear, I'm good. He says that His disciples have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, have you ever like, got ready to take a test, and like they give out the, the paper, and you sit down, you're cracking your knuckles, and you look, and you know the first question. Bam, I know that. Flashcard, boom, got it, answer C. Yes. And then you get your test paper back, and you got that one wrong. And then you see you got a lot wrong, because you didn't know what you thought you knew. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not murder. And I'm sure that most people sitting on that mountainside that day were, true righteousness, oh, murder. Okay, never done that one. I'm good. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So this is addressing the sixth commandment, right? Well, yes and no. The sixth commandment is found in Exodus 20, 13. And it's a, here's your memory work for today. You ready? You shall not murder. Okay, you just memorized a verse. You're welcome. Okay, Exodus 20.13 is stated simply, you shall not murder. So that's what Jesus is referring to, right? Well, look closely. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, that's not the same. What if you had to memorize this verse? It's a little different, right? So what's going on here? If you jump, if you see that you have heard that it was said, if you jump forward into verse 22 real quick, it says, but I say to you. So now Jesus is saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is the author of the law, says you have heard. And then he says, but I say to you. So we saw two weeks ago that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he says, you've heard this, but I say to you this. So let me ask you a question. Is Jesus contradicting the law? No. Is Jesus going to contradict the law? No. So what's going on here? Is there something different? Is Jesus saying something different in 22 than He is in 21? The answer is yes, but what He's saying in 21 is not quite what we think. I don't think. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, if Jesus was speaking of the Old Testament specifically, what do you think He would say? It is written. Or, thus saith the Lord. Or, has God not said? Right? If He was referring to that specifically, He would say something about God saying something. I think so. But He says here, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now remember we said two weeks ago that the scribes and Pharisees were known for their interpretation of the law. And they kept their laws and traditions as ways to show their version of their righteousness. Well, that stems back to how they would take the law and decide how to carry it out. And here's, here's, this is a pretty big point here. This was especially important after the return from exile from Persia. Listen. After having been in exile for a few generations, the Jews had lost their identity in many ways. One of the main ways was that they had lost their language. Okay, As they were in exile for those 70 years, 
they stopped speaking Hebrew and started speaking Aramaic. Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic a lot because that was the language of the Jews, but it wasn't the language of the original law that God had given. The original law was written in Hebrew. Well, you got a bunch of exiles who've come back to Jerusalem, and over the course of the years, they never adopted the Hebrew language back. They're still speaking Aramaic. Well, what was the law written in? Hebrew. So what happens when you can't read God's law? You have to rely on somebody else to interpret it for you, which is exactly what we saw in the Reformation, right? The, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church had bound up the word in Latin, and nobody could read Latin or speak Latin, So you had to go to church and listen to the professional preachers tell you what the Bible said. And that's exactly what's going on here. Okay, They'd come back and they're speaking Aramaic and they had to rely on the scribes and the Pharisees who spoke Hebrew to tell them what the law says and to tell them what the law meant. So they had to lean on the teachers. They had to have an intermediary between them and the direct revelation of God. So here in Matthew, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. Later in the chapter, he starts statements with, You have heard that it was said, and follows that up with, But I say to you. So then what he is contradicting is not the law. He's not contradicting God's word, but rather he's contradicting the rabbinic tradition that has been passed down through generations by those who were watering down the law. And we see that here. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, again, what did that sixth commandment say? What was your memory work? You shall not murder. Where did the rest of this statement then come from? It came from rabbinic tradition. It came from people interpreting and adding to the Word of God. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That was rabbinic tradition. And the judgment here refers to a civil, a magistrate judgment. It's not even talking about the judgment of God. It's saying you could get in trouble with the courts. If you commit murder the authorities might come for you. That's what they're saying in the rabbinic tradition. And while that was true in Exodus, when the law was given, the rabbinic tradition was concerned only with getting in trouble. It wasn't referring to God being upset with you or God judging you. It was talking about some guy with a gavel who's going to swing it and say you're guilty. What was the penalty for murder in the Old Testament? It was death. Now actually we see that law predates even Moses' time. Let's go back to Genesis 9. This is God talking to Noah. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now that's monstrously huge right there. You want to talk about capital punishment? Why? Because if you take somebody's life, you are in direct confrontation with the image of God. And this predates Moses. This predates the law. This goes back to God talking to Noah. So when you take someone's life, it's a big deal because it's an affront to God. And what the rabbis have brought in here is that don't murder because you could get in trouble with the civil authorities. And Jesus is like, that's not what we were talking about back when we gave this law before. Back when I gave this law before. If someone murders another human being, his life is forfeit. Why? For God made man in his own image. It's the taking of a life made in God's image that is of paramount importance. And so God would make it clear in the law, in the sixth commandment, and in various points of the rest of the law, and there's a lot in there, that murder is a capital offense. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's the rabbis. But thus saith the Lord, you shall not commit murder... Because man is made in God's image and taking the life of another on purpose is to attack the very image of God. So the commandment is a much bigger deal than the teachings of the rabbis. Let's move forward into verse 22. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So this verse starts with one, two, three, five big words. But I say to you. Matthew is portraying Jesus as what? King. This is authoritative. This is the king speaking. This is setting the record straight. This is the king making things right. Now note again, he's not quoting a rabbi or a tradition. He's not saying, now according to rabbi so-and-so, what they said is not true. He's saying, I say to you, I gave the law originally, and I'm telling you exactly what it means. He is exerting his authority. He is exerting his deity clearly and emphatically. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. And what does he say? Regarding the command to not murder, he says that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Let me just say something. If you've got a different version, it may have inserted in there without cause. I don't know if anybody's got that. That's in some of the versions. It's not in most of the early manuscripts. It's not in the best manuscripts. So we can kind of take that and say, well, I can be mad as long as I've got a cause. It's not in there, folks. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Let me just say real quick too, my mom hates it when I use the word fool because she thinks I'm going to hell. Like seriously, we didn't say fool in my house. So now I say it around her a lot just to get on her nerves. I hope she never listens to this message. But no, this is not saying don't call people a fool. There's much more to it than that, okay? Anybody, anybody ever hear that before? If you call somebody a fool, you're going to go to hell? Just my mom, great, okay? <laughs> so yeah, this is quite a bit bigger deal than just not murdering someone, right? He equates murder with anger. He equates murder with insults. Listen to me, youngins. He, ins- he equates murder with name-calling when you're angry. Now, did you hear what I just said? You've heard don't murder so that you don't get in trouble, but I say anger, insulting, and name-calling puts you in danger of being found guilty by men and by God. Now, that's a pretty big difference. Have you ever gotten mad at somebody? Have you ever insulted somebody in that anger? Have you ever called somebody a name in that anger? Jesus equates that with murder. It's devastating. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that the command not to murder was much more than just telling people not to kill each other. Instead, that command encompassed the whole of how people interact with each other in tense situations. And they're bound to come up. You're bound to get mad at someone sometime, obviously. And Jesus isn't saying the law forbids that. We'll get to that later. But He is saying that not addressing this anger, not dealing with this anger, or dealing with it in a way that demeans or lashes out at somebody else, is letting that anger manifest itself in ways that demean or twist your opinion of others. And that's a really big deal. And now listen, this is super giant... Enormous, all caps, underlined circle, exclamation points and stars, important. The verb that is translated is angry here is a present tense passive verb. Now what's that mean? It means that I am angry, but that that anger is acting upon me. Now, you say, why is that important? Because what you're going to see is we're supposed to act on our anger And handle it, not let our anger direct what we do. We can't be passive when anger is trying to act upon us. We have to act upon the anger. You cannot, cannot, cannot be passive when it comes to anger. The statement we make all the time, and I think this is later on, I'm going to say it again. But the statement we make all the time is, well, he really made me mad. He deserved that because he made me mad. 
Kids, get rid of that excuse. I'm destroying it today. Well, I punched him because he made me mad. If you'll, we'll see in a minute, punching's not the way you deal with anger. Name-calling's not the way you deal with anger. And you don't let anger act upon you. You have to act upon it. The verb translated is angry is a present passive verb. It means that it is happening now and it is acting on the subject. You are angry and the anger is making you angry. And this is the anger that's not all right. And it leads to insults and name-calling at least. And ultimately, if it's carried out to its ultimate end, it leads to murder. And that's clearly forbidden, right? And so Jesus is saying, if you continue to be angry, if you continue to let that anger influence you, and you're angry with your brother, if you let that anger act on you, drive you, influence you, you will be liable to judgment. And this is not civil judgment as he makes clear by going to the extreme of referencing the hell of fire. This is a far cry from not killing to avoid jail time. I'd kill more people, but I'd go to jail. That doesn't work. Now we've got a lot more to say here, and we will in application, but let's move on for now, because he is not done by far. Verse 23 and 24. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, whoa. Verse 23 starts with, so. Jesus is moving from being angry and hurling insults into what we should do about our anger. How to handle it so that it's not handling you. So, since anger is a big deal and has to be dealt with, do this. And what's he say? This seems so counterintuitive to me. If I'm forming a a, a thought process, I don't bring this up here. But it's right. And the author tells us why it's right. Listen, anger is a big deal and has to be dealt with. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, what's the first thing that anger influences? Your worship. Whew. You talk about stepping on toes. You talk about getting all up in your business. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. Your anger affects your relationship with God first and foremost. So anger affects our worship. Actually, he's saying handling our anger takes precedence over our worship. You know what would have been... Would be awesome to hear. You don't see somebody here today and you ask them, hey, where were you at? You know what? I had to go make things right with my brother, so I missed church. Ever heard that in your life? That's exactly what Jesus is saying to do here. You pull in the parking lot, you're coming in to make your offering, and you realize that your brother has something against you, pull out, go down the hill, find him, and make it right. Then come back and worship. This is pretty important. This is a pretty big deal. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. If you're going to worship God and you remember while you're there that your brother has something against you, then leave. And note that this has to do with your brother having something against you. He's not saying if you're angry with your brother. He's saying if you realize that your brother has something against you, then you need to leave and do something about it. This is not just about harboring something, but this particular statement, rather, is about there being tension between you and someone else and what they feel. So this goes even deeper than just your anger. This is beyond how you feel and goes into how others feel. No room for, oh, well, it's not on me here. I can't help it if they're mad. You're bringing your offering to God, your animal, your grain, yourself, your song... And remember that someone you know has a beef with you. And Jesus says, don't bother worshiping. Leave and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Wow! This is life-altering. And I'm not trying to blow it out of proportion. Let me ask you this. How many people in this room here this morning would be disqualified from worship because they need to be reconciled to someone who was upset with them. 
And remember, this is coming out of teaching on anger. Jesus is saying, don't let the relationships in your life get to a point where you are angry with someone else and don't let them be angry with you even. You be preemptive. You be proactive. You get out ahead of it and make it a matter of highest priority. This is a big deal. And again, there's a lot of possibilities here, a lot of variables that need discussed, and we'll talk about them in application. Because I know a lot of you are sitting here right now going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Let's get rid of yeah, but. There's no yeah, buts in Jesus' statements. There's no caveats. There's no disclaimers. There's no fine print. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. So verses 23 and 24 had to do with someone being upset with you. You remember that your brother has something against you. Now here in verse 25, we see what happens if you don't take care of that issue, possibly. Here, the one who has something against you has become your accuser. See the progression? You're mad. Then somebody's upset with you. You don't deal with it. Now they have become your accuser. Their issues with you have now become public record and are headed to the civil authorities. Now is there room for anger here? That son of a gun is suing me. That son of a gun was telling everybody what he's mad at me about. Is there room for anger there? Righteous anger. I'm justified in my anger. No. Jesus says the onus is on his disciples to come to terms quickly with their accusers while they're going with them to court. This refers to the disciples' willingness to give what is needed for reconciliation, whether it is qualified or not. Come to terms means work out a deal. Take the first step. Take the initiative. Listen to what the offended one is asking for and make efforts to meet them there, to do what they want. Why? Because they feel like, you have, they, they, feel like they have been wronged. They are taking you to court. Your job is not to establish your innocence. I need to say that again. Your job is not to establish your innocence, but instead to see the need of even your accuser and seeking to meet it. This is killing the need to be right. This is killing the need to make yourself look good in the eyes of others. But I didn't do anything wrong is the precursor to he lied about me or he's just a big baby. And on down it can go until we are angry, insulting, name-calling murderers. And that's not okay. Jesus' disciples are to be willing to compromise, be willing to give up your rights, and always be willing to do what is right. What if you did do wrong to the accuser? And what if the accuser is right? Then make it right and do it quickly. This is up to you. Imagine how angry you would be sitting in prison for something like this. Don't let that happen. You say, well, I don't really think I'm going to jail. Listen, there's more at stake here than just jail. Maybe you got your faith in the justice system. Good luck with that one. If your faith is in the justice of man, you're not fully trusting God's grace. If your faith is in somebody else forgiving you, good luck. If you're trusting in things just working out right because I'm God's kid, good luck. You're going to need it. In this world you will have trouble. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Are we supposed to whine and moan and complain and justify ourselves in the midst of that? No. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. You know what? Let me say something. You're going to be wronged. Lies are going to be told about you. And if you let that anger settle in your heart and don't do anything about it, you are in guilty of judgment. You're liable to be judged. Listen to me, Christian. Get used to this statement. Why not just rather be wronged? 
Because that's biblical. Let me read it for you. Paul says to the Corinthians, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases in the church amongst believers, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and then before unbelievers? Now listen, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I love that. I love that. Verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If you're willing to suffer wrong, if you're willing for people to defraud you, it's going to be real hard for that anger to settle into your life. Just give up your rights. Be defrauded. Be wronged. Your reconciliation to even your accuser is more important than you being right. And what if that doesn't take care of it? And it escalates. Look at verse 26. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And he's saying if you end up in jail, and he's saying if you end up before the judgment seat of God and you haven't dealt with this, you've missed your chance. You're going to pay, and you're going to pay in full. And here's the lesson there. There will come a time when you can't reconcile. Don't put things off till that time. Don't harbor your anger. Don't want to be right that long. You had a chance to swallow your pride and come to terms before all this happened, but you chose to want to defend yourself. You chose to make your righteousness known and seen by others. Now you can't make things right. Your only choice is to pay the price that your accuser was originally asking and maybe even more. And you will pay. Now, what's this got to do with anger? Now, this, not to over-spiritualize this, but anger will imprison you. I promise. And once you've gone there, once you're a slave to your anger, then reconciliation won't happen. Reconciliation can't happen. You just have to sit there and stew. I know a lot of angry people. And they're angry because of something that happened 20 years ago. Please, church, please, disciple of Jesus Christ, you are accumulating debt and that person that you are angry with has you in their grip. Don't let it get to that point. You should have gotten out in front of this. You should have not counted yourself and your feelings as more important than the other person, whether it was a brother or even your accuser. You should not have let your pride lead you to anger, which now holds you captive with no hope of getting out until the other person gets what they want from you. You are imprisoned to their whims and you are imprisoned by your own anger. And that's no way to live. That's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not how Jesus lived, right? And it's not how we should live. Because again, the Sermon on the Mount is saying, is Jesus saying, this is how I'm going to live, watch me, and this is how I'm going to have you live in response to how I lived. I want you to be like me. So much more to be covered, but we're about out of time. So we have to apply it, and there's a lot to apply. Okay? So, what should we do with our anger? Seems as if to me, and these will serve for our application points, there are stages of anger. We're going to look at getting angry, being angry, staying angry, and I had to cheat on this one, processing angry. It should be anger, but we had to stay. So getting angry, being angry, staying angry, and then processing angry. So first, getting angry. Let me be clear. Getting angry is not a sin. Okay? I know we've talked about anger, 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 and you're thinking, oh boy, I should never get angry. No, anger is a very normal and natural part of life. You are not hearing today that you're not supposed to get angry. Jesus got angry, right? We saw him act on that anger a couple times, cleansing the temple. We see him calling the Pharisees names, right? 
So is he a hypocrite? You're going to get angry. But the anger of Jesus did not define him. The anger of Jesus is not what drove him to do what he did. When he got angry, he acted on his anger and moved through that anger. That gets into processing. We'll get there in a minute. He didn't get angry easily either. Nor should we. The Word of God is clear that we are to be slow to anger. Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If you're one of those people that just gets mad... What happened? I don't remember. Mad. The fact that Proverbs talks about this shows that anger is a wisdom issue too, by the way. So we should be slow to anger. And the Bible is clear that we can be angry and not sin. Actually, that's commanded. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So a couple things here. Don't sin when you're angry and deal with it promptly. Don't let it linger. Why? Because lingering anger gives an opportunity to the devil. Lingering anger is a handle on your life that the devil can grab. So put it away. Colossians 3, 8 through 10 says it this way. But now you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So put it away. Put it away. When it comes, put it away. Deal with it. Actually, if we read the rest of that Ephesians verse passage... Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Listen to this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, name-calling, accusations, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger... And clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So when you get angry, deal with it. How do you deal with it? We'll get to that in a minute. But we see here clearly we're going to get angry. Getting angry is a fact of life. And the Scripture clearly teaches we're to be slow to anger and we're to deal quickly with anger when we do get angry. So that's getting angry. Now, there's a problem because what happens is when we get angry, we have a tendency to stay angry. That goes into staying angry. See how that works? And what we saw in Ephesians and Colossians both were deal with it, put it away. Don't let it linger. Do you have to? Do you have to let it linger? 27% of y'all. It's good. (laughs) You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it quickly. Don't stay angry because when we stay angry, look at this. Ecclesiastes, also wisdom literature, says this. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Lodges means it gets stuck in there. It stays there. And fools stay angry. Don't stay angry. Deal with it quickly because staying angry makes us do ugly things. And how do we equate it with murder? If we're starting to stay angry, John Stott says it this way, anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in your way. Our thoughts, looks, and words all indicate, as we sometimes dare to say, we wish he were dead. Such an evil wish is a breach of the sixth commandment. When we start to stay angry and it lodges in our hearts, that's when the anger and the insults come out. And those are symptoms of us staying angry. And that's how it ties into murder because truthfully, I don't wish they were dead, but yeah, you're kind of saying it wouldn't be too bad. 
It's what happens when you stay angry. And when we stay angry, we get angry, we stay angry, then we start to live angry. We're living angry. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So when we start to live angry, now we're a hot-tempered person. And everywhere we go, we're stirring up strife because we're mad at everything. We're mad at everybody. Because here's the thing about anger. It doesn't just sit there. It multiplies. It grows. It exudes out of everything we do and say. How many people know angry people? I know angry people. I've been angry people. It's because I haven't dealt with my anger. I told you a few weeks ago, Amanda approached me a little while ago and said, everything's making you mad. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I was living angry. And everything was, I was stirring up strife and everything in traffic. Anybody ever get mad in traffic? Anybody ever call people names in traffic? That's not the way to deal with it. Use your signal. Sometimes you don't say a word, you like do gestures or something. Same thing. And when we're living angry, everything makes us mad. Everything. But listen to this. When we're living angry, we've got a problem. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I promise you, when you are living angry, your life is not producing the righteousness of God. You are selfish, self-centered. You're mad at everybody. You're mad at everything. That's not righteousness. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, this external thing, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And if you've gotten angry, and you've stayed angry, and you're living angry, you are not producing the righteousness of God. So, processing angry. Getting, staying, living. Processing angry. Listen to me as we finish. It is is the responsibility of the angry person to deal with their anger. Nobody else is going to fix this for you. You may get what you want. You may get exonerated. And you're still going to be mad. Look at the commands in our passage from today. You can't look at it. Listen. Listen to the commands in this passage from today. Leave your gift. Be reconciled to your brother. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Your gift, your brother, your accuser. They literally read for you to do your part. There is no mention of the other person doing anything except accusing. Listen to me. Your anger is your issue to deal with. Your anger, listen to me, is not dependent on somebody else. You can't hand it off and say, well, if they would act right, if they would do right, if they would change, if they would be different, then I wouldn't be so angry. And if you're thinking that this refers to somebody else, if you're nudging your spouse, if you're looking around going, they need to hear this, or boy, I wish so-and-so was here, they really need to hear this, you're missing the whole point. You're wrong. This is not about your wife or your husband or your co-worker or your boss or anyone else. This passage is about you. It's about me. Don't deflect this thinking somebody else needs it. You need it. We all get angry, right? Then who has to deal with that anger? The one who is feeling it. And I cannot overemphasize that. You have to hear Jesus saying that you being angry with your brother makes you liable to judgment. When you insult your brother, you will be liable to the council. If you call someone a fool or any other name for that matter in anger, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You are the one who is to leave your gift on the altar and seek out your brother who has something against you. And you are to be reconciled to that brother. You are to come to terms quickly with your accuser on your way to court. Stop blaming other people for your anger. Stop feeling like a victim. Because that just makes you mad at people. 
Who victimized you? It's their fault. While the world says they made me mad, the Christian says my anger drives me to make things right. You talk about repentance. You're talking about changing the way you think and thus changing the way you feel and thus changing the way you act. Let's start here. You grab that anger by the biblical lapels and deal with it correctly. And how do we deal with it correctly? Humble yourself. Forfeit your rights. Stop your accusing. Stop your blaming and name-calling and make things right. You be reconciled to your brother. No excuses. No justification. You do it. How can we do that? Let's start here. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. You choose the soft answer. You choose to turn away wrath. You choose to not stir up anger. That's a choice you can make. And how? Listen to me. Here's the answer. I've got the answer. How? With the help of the same Spirit who helped Jesus. The same Jesus who gave this Sermon on the Mount was the one who was, like 1 Peter, 1, uh, 1 Peter 2.23 says, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. If anybody in history had a right to revile in return, to retaliate and defend himself, it was the perfect spotless Lamb of God who was being unjustly murdered. But he did not get angry. He did not let himself to be driven to defend himself against the injustice, but rather he entrusted himself to Him who judges justly. And the same Holy Spirit of God who did that in and through Him can help you do that. I'm not telling you to bite your lip and try harder. I'm not going to say what I want to say because that's a hard issue. But I'm saying when you feel that anger, you go directly to God and you say, God, help me to come up with the soft answer. Help me to deflect. Help me to defer wrath and help me to be like Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross and He said this, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Thieves on each side hurling insults at him and everybody around him because they're mad. And Jesus says, please forgive them because they don't, they don't get it. It was the Spirit of God in him that did that. And that same Spirit is in us. It is the Spirit of God that enables us to keep and obey the commands of God. So we ask Him for help when we are angry. We ask Him to help us diffuse the anger in us. We ask Him to help us guard our tongues when we're verbally assailed. We ask Him for help when we know that someone has something against us. We ask Him for help to give up our rights and make things right with our accuser and our enemy. And we entrust ourselves to the Father, just like Jesus did, who, listen to me, one day will make all things right. So then our anger becomes a window that we can look through. When God takes that away and makes all things right. Now, let me address this forthright. Am I saying just be abused? Just be a doormat? No. No. I'm saying deal with your heart and know that it is right in the sight of God because God has empowered you to be right in your heart and then that will affect your actions. And yes, I know, as does the Bible, that it is impossible for everyone to always be happy with you. And yes, there will be times when others are angry towards you and there's no hope of reconciliation. I understand that. The Bible understands that. Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now it's important to see that he started that statement out real quickly with saying, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
You can't make everybody like you. You can't make everybody not mad at you. That's not the command here. The command here is to make sure your heart is right and that you're not harboring anger toward the other person. And if you're not doing that, you're going to be angry. And you're going to feel accused. And you're going to want to justify yourself and show everybody why you're right and not wrong. The call is to do our part here, even in Romans 12, so far as it depends on you. We can't always make things right in the mind of the other person, but we have to deal with the anger in our own hearts. We deal with our anger. We plea with the other person and come to terms if possible. And if that doesn't remedy things, you trust God. And when you trust God, anger tends to go away. And that leaves no room for anger in your own heart. So you may ask yourself, really, is this such a big deal? Well, I would bring you back to where we started, which was looking at the author himself and what he said about what he wrote. And what does Jesus say about anger? He said the commandment prohibiting anger, prohibiting murder, contained all this stuff about anger. While the scribes and the Pharisees contented themselves with not murdering anybody, the lawgiver says you can't look at the sixth commandment and wipe your brow with relief, glad that you've never murdered anyone. God was dealing with our attitude toward our brother and our enemy and what's going on in our hearts when we are angry with them. And He calls us in the same way that He does in calling us not to murder to deal with our anger toward others. It's probably safe to say that sitting here, you want to make sure you don't murder anybody. Okay, It's a good life goal. Okay, Put that high on your list. But God is dealing with our attitude toward our brother and our enemy and what's going on in our hearts. And so I ask you, will you live with the same passion and the same level of commitment to not be angry with your brother as you would to not murder somebody? Would you have the same level of commitment and determination to try to make sure that your brother is not mad at you as you would to not murder somebody? You see, the law of God deals not just with the fruit of our anger, like murder, but also the very seeds that are sown in our hearts and minds that have to do with anger. The author has spoken, and he's been very clear in what he meant. Our question is, will we take his interpretation of what he said to heart? And will we let him empower us to keep his commandments? That is the very essence of what it means to be his disciple. And he's the author. And he says so. Let's pray. God, your commandments are not burdensome. But I tell you, sometimes they feel very overwhelming. And they should. And your commandments lead us to the one who fulfilled these commandments perfectly. I can't do this in and of myself. And I'm glad because now I defer to him. I defer back to the author, not just to tell me what it means, but to help me do what he says it means. God, help us to be those who deal quickly with our anger, not a slow smolder, but a quick flame that burns out that we don't continue to give fuel to. And let us to see, God, that this is a big deal. And may it overwhelm us and push us to Jesus. God, you were angry with us. We were your enemies. And as we opposed you, your anger waited. And you chose to adopt us into your family and give us the full blessings of sonship. You gave us the blessing of a perfectly righteous life lived by our brother Jesus. And if we have been forgiven of all these things, how can we not forgive others? God, if there be somebody here who does not know you, let them know even now by the power of your Spirit that your anger resides on them. And when you make all things right, the punishment for their disobedience, for their sin, will be hell. Unless 
they turn to the author, unless they turn to Jesus who lived a perfect life and took their sins upon His body to pay the penalty for them so that they could be given forgiveness and righteousness. Jesus died and was buried and rose again and is now seated at your right hand. Help us all to put our faith in Him. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans. Thank you for entrusting your Son and your Spirit to us, Father. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay with us if you can.